Tick, tick, tick. It's on? Yeah. Oh, I don't have my hearing aid on. I'll get it at the... At the uh, but you can get it. Do you want me to go get them? Yeah, they're right on my dresser near my bed. Okay. <laughs> Who needs... I don't need to hear myself. <laughs> but they, I do want to hear you. So here we are, another afternoon session with me. Now that means that there will be me talking and also some interactive work. And uh, the plan for this afternoon is that I will, uh, I expect to be uh, shooting the breeze here for about an hour, and followed by uh, interactive practice before and after the break. So it appears that some of you are surprised at the and not quite sure how it fits with your ideas of a silent retreat to have interactive work. So let me uh, warn you what's happening. Uh, after an hour, we'll do, well, there were three, there can be three forms of interactive work. One where you talk, one where you uh, move around and don't talk, and one which is a, a ritual with uh, our Pachamama, Prajnaparamita. So you have a choice there, uh, three choices. One is that you can uh, take part. The second choice is that you can go for a walk and withdraw. And the third choice is that you can stay in the room, but... Just sit by yourself and not interact. So there you go. Nothing forced. You have that choice. And, um, and I am so glad to be with you all. And I'm glad that the mother of all Buddhas has turned. I can see her facing me a little bit. as well as behind my back, where she usually hangs out. So, uh, our second afternoon yesterday, uh, we were uh, going through uh, sort of a spiral of work with her, beginning with gratitude. And when you're living in a dicey time, uh, it is always important to start with gratitude because that puts ground under your feet. And it makes, helps you to receive the time that we're living in as an incredible gift. And that's, I'm not being cute about that. Because when you see what is happening for our brothers and sisters of all species, would you seriously want that to come about and you not be here? You have checked out somehow? Aren't you glad to be here? Even when it's dicey? Oh, there. Oh, good. Now I can hear. Thank you. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Aren't hearing aids wonderful? Anybody else have any? Oh. For the best. <laughs> and we saw yesterday in the uh, reflections and practice of gratitude uh, how uh, that's a revolutionary act in the present political economy. For late stage capitalism, depends on our dissatisfaction and aggravating it ever more, that we feel ever more craving and more needy and insufficient. It's a cruel system, as I said. And so to look, uh, stand right up there and be glad you're here 
I'm glad you're just as alive as you are with all the senses and thoughts and feelings and tears, too. Uh, that gratitude, yes, is revolutionary. And now today, as we began already with um, Deborah this morning so exquisitely, uh, we turn to that second stage. And uh, look how we be and how can, with the uh, suffering in our time, how we be with painful feelings that come up. And we will see, too, how that is a revolutionary act. Are not taken off and running for the hills or closing down, but standing there. You know that the uh, mother of all Buddhas, Prajnaparamita, again and again, it is said, she sees clearly our world. Yata Bhutam, just as it is. We want to do that too, and she'll help us. And for us to keep our eyes uh, and hearts and minds open in this time to see what's going on, to feel what's going on, is uh, actually an act of, uh, if you don't mind get my getting a little bit political, it's an act of, uh, efficacious act of rebellion against a dominator system. It is very useful to the power holders to have us shut our eyes and close down. And that's one of the reasons why they, uh, through the media and the political campaigns, have been so, and the legal system, uh, and Congress is right there helping uh, to uh, make us afraid. You know that. It's very dramatic after 9-11. Right away we were given an enemy to fear. We'll make war on terrorism. Terrorists under every bed. And that fear, and uh, we obediently draw it in, obediently go through the security uh, charade at the airports. We, we become... Uh, compliant, obedient, and scared. And so this teaching of the great mother of all Buddhas is a really big help. How to stand tall and open heart, open-eyed, whatever's coming down. and not to shut down. There have been moments, I must confess, when I was afraid that our country, at least my own country, I don't know where y'all are from, are uh, becoming a nation of closed-down hearts and minds. So who do we have to help us with that? We have uh, the mother, and we have... Uh, her sons and daughters, the bodhisattvas. So how wonderful. And the bodhisattvas that she says, each one of us is at our core and can flourish into being most flamboyantly, should we choose, or sneakily if we'd prefer. (laughs) And a nation of closed hearts and minds doesn't make a big shout when there's talk of permanent war. Doesn't make a uh, big hullabaloo about revelations of mass surveillance and spying. Doesn't take to the streets 
with this uh, over uh, the toxins in our environment. Doesn't raise a big shout when the government closes down the air monitoring stations after Fukushima within a week. So we have no national health advisories how to protect our families and ourselves from the radiation from Fukushima. We become good little children. And what's the root of that? What helps us that to happen? Fear of pain. Fear of moral pain. Fear of physical pain. Fear of standing up and speaking out. And so today's uh, time together is what's very close to my heart. How we can uh, not only uh, be with our world just as it is and in the suffering, but not only tolerate it, but honor it. Because the Bodhisattva knows that when our hearts are breaking and when the pain is there, it doesn't stem from some personal neurosis, some private craziness. It stems right from our interconnectedness. It comes from our caring. So I'll say it now and I'll say it again and I'll say it at the end and I'll say it in the middle. (laughs) That our pain for the world and our love for the world are like two sides of the same coin. If you didn't care for and love your world so much, it wouldn't matter what's happening to it. It wouldn't, wouldn't break your heart so. Blessed are those that mourn. For they shall be comforted. And that theme just doesn't run through, what's that, the Beatitudes, my root tradition, but uh, all the spiritual paths. You don't be afraid. You don't be afraid. We've got such good, strong hearts. That's what they're for. They don't need to an inoculation of uh, a soporific. They like to be exercised. So uh, let's turn to the, uh, uh, what the mother of all Buddhas tells us about the bodhisattvas. And of course you know uh, from uh, our uh, being together and the article, I'm going to read from the essay that was sent to you all. And I've read it more than you have, and yet I like to quote from it, so it's okay. Uh, That before that, the Bodhisattva was seen as a previous incarnation of Gautama, the Buddha. And Prajnaparamita really gets it. That central doctrine of our dependent co-arising, and I like the term that Thich Nhat Hanh has given it in our time, our inter-being, our inter-existence. This is an ancient Buddhist teaching. And so, uh, if Gautama, Siddhartha, Shakyamuni can be a bodhisattva, well, we can too. (laughs) So, let's... A uh, few things I just tickle me, so I have to share them with you out loud. As Buddhas, this is quoting from the Prajnaparamita and 8,000 lines. As Buddhas, world teachers are your sons, so you, oh blessed one, grandmother of all beings, he who sees you is liberated. And he who does not see you is liberated too. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think that's my favorite line. 
oh, I thought I'd be somebody special if I were a bodhisattva. Well, right away, what do we learn there? Bodhisattva's not a special person. You know, bodhisattva badge. No credentials to flash at some people. Boy, you can believe that. Or the other statements about the bodhisattva. Countless beings will the bodhisattva lead to nirvana, and yet nobody's led to nirvana. The Bodhisattva trains in the Buddha's teachings, but no training is this training, and nobody's trained. <laughs> Boy, you can't count on being anybody very distinctive and, and be meddled. <laughs> What's going to happen to my pride? How can you get pompous if this is being said about you? <laughs> Whoa. So there's that. Do all that work, opening your heart, and you don't even get to be special. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess, does anybody here need to be? No, so let's forget that. We'll forget that. And then, to be a bodhisattva, doesn't even make you calm and comfortable. Oh, here is what a bodhisattva is like, and I quote, He is like a pregnant woman, all astir with pains, whose time has come for her to give birth. You don't need to have had three children like me to know that that is not a moment when you're in supreme <laughs> That's what a bodhisattva is ready to feel. <laughs> or another metaphor, bodhisattva is like a mother ministering to her only child. That's not always an image of total calm, is it? Or he is, quote, just as a cow does not abandon her young calf, so does the bodhisattva follow the teacher until he knows the perfection of wisdom by heart. (coughs) Then it goes on. I hope you notice this because it's quite delicious. In the Bodhisattva's constant pondering of the perfection of wisdom, mother of all Buddhas, he is like a man who, and I quote, had made a date with a handsome, attractive, and good-looking woman, and now, if that woman were held back by someone else and could not leave her house, what do you think, Subhuti? asked the Buddha. So this scripture is a conversation between the Buddha and a very uh, sharp follower named Subhuti, and then there's someone who doesn't quite get it the whole time, and his name is Shariputra, which is quite a brave thing to say because he was known as the most scholarly of the uh, Buddha's disciples. So if the woman were held up, says the Buddha, what would he, with what would that man's preoccupations be connected? With the woman, of course, Subhuti answers. He thinks about her coming, about the things they'll do together, about the joy, fun, and delight he will have with her. Just so, says the Buddha, just as preoccupied as he, says the Lord, is the Bodhisattva with thoughts of the perfection of wisdom. (laughs) Bodhisattva sounds sort of like a regular guy. (laughs) Or a regular guy in childbirth. That's interesting. (laughs) So wonderful. 
And then uh, this uh, being a bodhisattva doesn't even get you a fast train to a nicer place. So there's this quote from her wisdom. Those who are certain that they have got safely out of this world are unfit for full enlightenment. Would you like me to repeat that? (laughs) Those who are certain that they have escaped from this painful world got safely out of this world. They are unfit for full enlightenment. And so in the scripture, it goes on with words that are more familiar to us. They've been picked up again in other scriptures, and Shanti Deva and the others. And in this dwelling of perfect wisdom, you will become a savior of the helpless, a defender of the defenseless, a light to the blind, and you shall guide the path those who have lost it, and you shall become a support to those who are without support. Staying in a world that's uh, in turmoil or even in um, poisoned not only by the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, but literal toxins. That's what the bodhisattva does. And that speaks a lot to us right now on the west coast of Turtle Island with the contamination raining on us. And I remember even long before, when I was a little girl, uh, long before I even heard the name Buddhist or Buddhism, there was an image of uh, a, a saintly man who had been serving the lepers and who stayed with them. Father Damien. Everybody, anybody remember hearing about Father Damien? Yeah. Well, that my heart just opened with that. I think it was my first feeling of response to the act of a... No, that's not at all true. Because their bodhisattva is all over the place. But I remember uh, that. And that makes me think of a bodhisattva... Uh, in the Vatican now. He's sort of talking like one, isn't he, Pope Francis? Mm. And there are, uh, this is a, a uh, beautiful stream, a uh, river of human experience to be unafraid uh, of the suffering of our world, so full of uh, desire to minister and so full of love for life and its beings. And that brings me to a couple of poems that I would want to share with you before I go much farther that convey this uh, readiness to be here in the uh, in the turmoil. This is what's happening now. The mother of all Buddhas asked to look it straight in the eye and she'll give us the bodhisattva tools for doing that. So these two poems are uh, by two uh, poets in their 20s. Uh, One lived over 100 years ago and he's German. And another lives right here in Oakland, and she wrote the poem, both poems, this last year. Now, those of you who know me and talk about, hear me talk about a German poet, you'll probably know that it's Rainer Maria Rilke, whose poetry has been a great joy for me to translate with my 
uh, co-translator, Anita Barrows. He wouldn't call himself a bodhisattva, but he is so open to his world and he lets, he, he so identifies with his world that he lets his world speak uh, through him. Now, in this collection, which is called the Rilke's Book of Hours, he called his Book of Hours, these were written in his 20s over 100 years ago. And they were written in the persona of a monk. He had just come back from uh, Russia uh, with his uh, beloved, who was a Russian woman, and he had uh, been fed up with Christianity, but he saw a quality of spirituality in Russia, a love for the earth, a simple, deep, abiding love for uh, the earth. And so he imagines himself feeling that devotion, but also in a monastery. And um, and I think that I'll read the first poem of it because it's where I think you are, all of us are, as we're ready to look at our world and keep on looking at our world in 2014. So here he is. You can imagine he's being the monkey. Here's the bell of the monastery. The hour is striking so close above me, so clear and sharp, that all my senses ring with it. I feel it now. There's a power in me to grasp and give shape to my world. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. All becoming has needed me My looking ripens things, and they come toward me to meet and be met. Well, then some uh, 30 poems later, and a couple of years later in the second part, he has been in the cities, and he had written, Oh, the great cities are lost and rotting. But he speaks, he still... He's letting his world speak through him. I am praying again, awesome one. You hear me again as words from the depths of me rush toward you in the wind. I have been scattered in pieces, torn by conflict, mocked by laughter, washed down in drink. In alleyways, I sweep myself up out of garbage and broken glass. I don't mean to offend you by saying this, but to me, that is a bodhisattva speaking, who has been able to open her heart, his heart, to the lostness and degradation of our time and give it voice. I continue. I lift to you my half hands in wordless beseeching. With my half mouth I stammer you. I am a house gutted by fire where only the guilty sometimes sleep before the punishment that devours them hounds them out into the open. I am a city by the sea, sinking into a toxic tide. I am strange to myself, as though someone unknown had poisoned my mother as she carried me. It's here, in all the pieces of my shame, that now I find myself again. Do you feel the courage in that? You hear the raw, beautiful, loving courage? 
to let the pain speak, the lostness speak. And we need that in our Mickey Mouse world. I continue. It's here in all the pieces of my shame that now I find myself again. I yearn to belong to something, to be contained in an all-embracing mind that sees me as a single thing. I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Oh, let them take me now. And to them, I place these fragments, my life. And you, God, you, Great Mother, spend them however you want. The next poem I'm eager to share with you at this moment uh, is by a uh, another poet in her 20s. Uh, she's African-American, living in Oakland, part of a group of young people of color that uh, trained with me last year in the work I do called The Work That Reconnects, but it's based on all that we're doing here based on the teachings for and about the Bodhisattva and the teachings of the Great Mother of all Buddhas. So we had just been doing, at that point of the work where we were learning to honor our pain. After that, we had done a very intense ritual and she sat down and wrote this Others were drawing. We were just sort of collecting ourselves from the wrenching truth-speaking we'd done. But Eris, that's her name, wrote this. Don't try and fix it. Let me feel my pain. I refuse to be numb. Don't tranquilize me when I have a psychotic break. I've been propping myself up for years popping pills to make the nightmares go away, smiling to keep from crying, doing overtime, keeping myself busy so I wouldn't feel the pain. I have been numb for years. Let me feel the pain I have hid behind my degrees and educational pursuits because the world told me I was not good enough. Let me breathe through it because I've been holding my breath for what seems like years. Don't tell me I'm overreacting and give me your proverbs on forgiveness. Let me feel it. Let me feel it. It won't kill me. I was told once, you have to feel it to heal it. And I've been cruise controlling on numb, too afraid that if I came to grips with the truth, my truth, our truth, that somehow you would lose faith in me. If I admit that stuff is messed up, that I get weary sometimes, that I need to be held sometimes, don't give me your medication because my heart is open, because I see injustice and am enraged. Don't try and switch my position and nicely clean it up. Let me grieve the loss of men and women close and far. Let my tears fall like a waterfall into the earth. Don't rub my back. Let me be with the pain. Let me be wild with emotion as I work through my guilt and shame. The burdens placed on me that never belonged to me. Let me cry for my ancestors who died with grief. Let me wail on behalf of the abused men and women who were told not to make a sound. Let me cry for my nation and many nations under God. I am human. I am alive. I choose not to reject the pain. No, I'm not depressed, just tired of pretending that I'm not 
affected, tired of pretending I'm strong, tired of not feeling. Being estranged from my emotions, tired of that. So let me honor my pain. And don't you dare try and fix it. Because really you're afraid you will lose it if I don't stop. Because my pain is your pain. My grief is your grief. So let me feel it so I can move forward. She, uh, there's a line in that maybe you heard and what poured through her uh, breathing. She said, let, uh, let me breathe through it. Remember hearing that? Mm-hmm. Well, that comes from a practice that we uh, did in the work. Uh, and I'm going to share it with you. Uh, it's called breathing through. The breath is such a wonderful gift. And you have it there if you're alive. You're breathing. And it's wonderful because wherever you are, there's your breathing too. And however you're feeling, there's your breathing too. And it connects your mind with your body. Your good, solid body. So your mind can't go spiraling out. And it connects the inside with the outside. The depths of your heart with the reaches of space where all the beings are too. Now, many of you, I bet, in Buddhist practice are familiar with the practice of Tonglen. Any people here? Yeah. And that is from a Tibetan practice where you uh, breathe in the pain, distress. And in your heart, you let it uh, transform into love and healing and compassion. And you breathe that out. One of my teachers, Sogyal Rinpoche, has a very key part of his book of Tibetan book of living and dying, using it with the dying, but using it in any situation of a challenge and difficulty with where you're with people in great pain. So that's one thing that is you can do with your breath. So if you breathe in the garbage and breathe out the purity, you transform it. And there's also from the Hindu tradition where you uh, breathe in the... Uh, uh, Purity and light and breathe out the darkness and the dreck. And the, so the, the breath is, is, uh, can help with all, in all sorts of ways. But what I'm talking about, what we did with Eris and what we do in the work is not any of those. It's simply breathing it through. That is, taking the painful information, the painful sights, the painful situation, the suffering of the world, and taking it uh, with the breath up through the nostrils, down through the windpipe, through the chest, and by active imagination, taking it through your heart. But instead of transforming it there, You just let it pass through and then release it on the out-breath into the healing resources of the web of life. Now you may say, well, why don't you transform it? And so I'll say that uh, there are situations that you're in where you don't feel up to that, where even the desire is lacking, or the will, or the time. But you don't want to close down. So you just hold yourself there and let the 
pain of the world flow through. Sometimes you don't even want to, as my experience, do that transformation thing. Sometimes it make, might feel a little bit like fixing it in a world where there's a lot of fix-it mentality. But a readiness to let the suffering of our world just come in with a breath and flow through the heart. That's a big thing. And if you're ready for that, you know what it does? It uh, lowers the defenses that immediately raise up that tension that comes when you see or hear or run across something that's difficult, painful, challenging. And so we, <gasps> there's that feeling that's automatic. And this corrects for that. And you just take it in and pass it through the heart. That's a very brave act. And what it means is what it builds, what it engenders is a a real openness. I'll be with my world, with the mother of all Buddhas at my back, but I'll be with my world no matter what happens. I won't try to close off. So we could try that for just a minute. You want to? Yeah. So we sit and uh, we're going to do this just for five minutes because uh, the point of it is in the living. It could be when you're picking up a paper and seeing the news, flicking on the, the television set, hearing the news. Oh, my God, he didn't say that. Or uh, looking out at... Uh, the uh, <coughs> smog over the city, walking by the, the homeless on the street, engaging with your world, and then you just let that pass through your heart. So, first, let's just make some strong exhalations. And now connect with the breathing and the many sensations of breathing that you can feel in your body. And the filling of the chest cavity, passage of air on the upper lip, the nasal passages the rise and fall of the abdomen. But nowhere do you find somebody deciding to breathe in, breathe out. It seems to be happening by itself. It's like we're being breathed, isn't it? being breathed by life. And now you can let images come up for you. Maybe they're already there from what we've been saying or reading. But images of the pain and distress of the beings in our world. Oh, you don't have to stretch for them or invent them. They're right there under the surface of your mind through the great circuits of knowing that encircle our globe. And as an image comes up, see how you can take it on the breath like granules of sand. Take that image. People in barracks, people on the streets, people in schools, people on waiting in lines, beings looking for food, 
Just take those images and they're on the breath, on that stream, those granules, and breathe them through. Down into your chest cavity and now by an act of the imagination, take them through your heart. Don't hang on to them. Let them keep on flowing out into the web of life. But your heart is not the same. And that information is not the same. Because they have been together. The time for acting on it will come, but the acting will be cleaner and stronger because you have really taken it through your heart. You're not trying to push it away. And if no images at all come, and it's just numbness, then breathe that numbness through also. That's a very real part of our world today. Or if what comes up for you is not the pain of our world, but your own personal pain, loss, despair, you breathe that through because your pain is an inextricable part of the world's grief. And if as you breathe through the pain, it feels like your heart would break, well, they say that your heart is not an an object that will break. But even if it were, they say the heart that breaks open can hold the whole universe. It is that big. So that's just give you a feel for it. But as I said, it is really good in the right in the hurly burly of your life. Are there any questions about that before we go on? Good. I want to read you something else. By the same young woman who did that practice. Now, remember she said, I breathed, I've been breathing through my pain. And so this, a few weeks later, she wrote this. Maybe it was a month or two later. So this is what can happen when you are unafraid, the way she's been. Yeah, she shared it at our last meeting. It's called, I Got Blood on My Hands. I got blood on my hands, but I ain't never owned a gun, ain't never guided a drone in blue skies, dropped a bomb. I got blood on my hands, and it's seeping through my clothes made in China in some factory in unsanitary conditions. Can't leave till they meet their quota so I can meet my needs for fashionable, cheap clothing. I got blood on my hands, dripping off my fingertips as I like post on Instagram, my cell phone made from coltan found in Congo, 
child soldiers, militias fight for fighting for a share of the black market for minerals. Companies profit from tribal wars to feed our technology needs. I got blood on my hands even though I would never intentionally hurt a soul. But I want an iPad even though I know of the 11 workers that jumped from the Foxconn building in China. Forced labor, sweatshop conditions. When did this black girl become addicted to technology, addicted to a destructive way of living, willing to sacrifice my human family for trinkets? The real question is, what do I do now that I know what I know? I've never read those two poems before in a group, but I'm so glad I had them with me. They're written a couple of months apart. Can you see the connection? Can you see that her being willing to feel her pain, don't fix it, let me feel my pain, took her to the place of seeing the blood on her hands and seeing our collective guilt. So uh, now we come to a time when I warned you (laughs) we're going to do an interactive process. And um, so I'd like you to, with great alacrity, this is not the break. The break will come in half an hour. With great alacrity and smoothly, uh, pair up and pair up on the, you might stand.